All right, so we're going through the book of Revelation, and we're in chapter 18 this morning, and uh, there is a Bible app event for this. If you have the Bible app, the Version Bible app, you click on the little menu and look for an event near you, you're going to see a lot of the notes and the Bible verses that are here. It can actually facilitate uh, your following along if you would like that. Uh, I'd encourage you to do so if you don't. A regular old Bible work, if you open it to chapter 18, we're going to read that entire chapter and talk about it in some detail uh, this morning. Um, hey, wasn't it great having Pastor Bernie here last week, right? Did he wear his kilt? No, oh, that's just wrong, all right? Yeah. Pastor Bernie uh, has a kilt that he bought, and he wears it from time to time. He likes to wear his, his kilt, even though, and you can tell him I said this, he likes to wear his kilt even though he doesn't have the legs for it there. Uh, how's that, right? Yeah. I can remember when Bernie and a couple other pastors in the area bought kilts. They went out and bought kilts, and they're wearing them at Mahaffey Camp and everything else, uh, enjoying being Scottish, I guess. And, and I gave some thought. You know, my mother was born in Scotland, right? I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and uh, I gave some thought to maybe I should get a kilt. And so I, I got online, and I saw the price of them, right? And you can get a kilt for $50, but that's not a kilt. I mean, you know, if you want something from Scotland, you know, it's made from wool, from the, the sheep up on the highlands, you know, you're, you're going to be, you can pay up to $500 for one of those things. And that's just a wee little bit too much for this Scotsman to pay. I can tell you that right now, lads, right? Uh, I just couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, justify that expense. My mother was born in Scotland. She was born in the Wifflet. Wifflet means wheat field. She was not literally born in a wheat field. She was born in a community that uh, had become a community, a small village. Uh, They were very, very poor. When she was nine years old, she moved to Buffalo, New York, to the slums in Buffalo, and it was a big upgrade for her to live in the slums there in Buffalo, New York. I'm thankful to this day for the Plymouth Brethren who had a ministry into that community, and my mom received Christ through their ministry. They were bridge builders, and my mom received Christ through that ministry. My mom loved her Scottish heritage, and as such, I have experienced all things Scottish. I can remember when I was a kid, uh, one time, uh, I remember this many, many times, I'll just give you one example. There was a parade in Brookville, it was a Laurel Festival parade, uh, and the parade just went to the length of Main Street, kind of like in, in Kermansville here. Uh, Brookville, we have what, two and a half stoplights, Brookville maybe has six or eight, so it's a little bigger town than this. And I can remember in that parade, there was uh, some bagpipes going along, a troop of bagpipes band going along, and my mom got into that line with those pipers and walked the length of the, <laughs> in the parade with them, just proud as she could be, because she loved her Scottish heritage. And I have heard bagpipes from maybe like Maine to California, I've heard them all, and some of them really rock. I don't know if you've ever heard anything like that, but that, my mom wouldn't have liked that. She liked the more traditional stuff. I've been to the Highland Games. Has anyone been to Highland Games? Put your hand up. Yeah, two of us, maybe three, right? Yeah, the Highland Games are pretty interesting. They have all kinds of games. That's a rope pull. Uh, this was down in uh, Idlewood. Is that the name of Idlewild or something like that? Um, and uh, we went to the Highland Games there back when I had a really cheap digital camera. That's why these pictures are a little bit lacking. But you might look at that and say, those are men in kilts pulling that, but those are actually women in kilts who are involved in a rope pull. That's one of the events. Another one is called the stone put. Do you know what stone put is? Well, you know what shot put is, right? That's where you take that, that um, ball bearing, that heavy steel ball, and you put it on your shoulder and you throw it. If you're Scottish, that's a rock. And uh, so they have what they call the stone put. Um, they have the caber toss. How many know what a caber toss is? Let me see. Ah, several of you know that. So this is a picture of a caber toss. On that side, you're gonna see a guy standing there like this. And right in front of him, you can see it looks like there's a pole suspended in midair there. You see that? What that is, is that is a telephone pole-sized thing, and they gave it to him, and he's holding it like this. He's balancing it, and he gets it just right. He starts running with it, and he lets it lean forward ahead of him, and then at the last minute, he flips it end for end. It's easy. (laughs) 
It is not easy at all to do that. Um, yeah, tosses it into the air and flips it. They have a weight throw where they take like a weight and they swing around and they start. They also have the hammer throw. And the hammer throw is where you take a large hammer and you twirl around like this until you can, you, you release it. You throw your whole body around like this until you release it and you let it go. By the way, take a look at that guy in that picture. Do you see that? See that guy there? If you ever wonder why you do not refer to the attire of a Scotsman as a skirt, that's why. <laughs> You'll get killed if you do it. All right? Yeah. I've been to the uh, Highland uh, dances uh, and saw the, the bagpipers in Toronto at the Canadian National Exhibition. It was there we got to see um, a group that is known as the Black Watch and their Black Watch plaid kilts. Only they can wear those. And if you are wearing them and you do not belong to them, they will take it off of you immediately. They are the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Regiment of Scotland. I'm going to tell you their nickname. It's a bad word. It's bad to use it in this context, but I'm going to do it anyway. They call themselves... The ladies from hell. <laughs> That's kind of cool, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because they're warriors, and uh, you would be uh, uh, hard-pressed to find more ferocious battlemen than they, right? I also grew up on tatties and minch. The tatties and minch I had was not this good, though, because my mom didn't put carrots and onions and other uh, vegetables into it because, frankly, they couldn't afford it. And uh, what it is, it's just cheap ground beef with potatoes. Uh, they would boil that together, and then you would eat tatties and minch. Now, some of you who know me and know how I feel about cream and coffee, some of you are looking at that picture, and you're saying, why is there cream in that coffee? And I'm going to tell you this. Your question is flawed. Who knows why the question is flawed? Because no Scotsman would ever have coffee with his tatties and minch. It's tea. And you always put milk in your tea. You don't put cream in your tea because you can't afford it. You're a Scotsman. You're too cheap or too, too tight to do that, right? Yeah. Just, just one more thing. Um, I have eaten haggis, sadly. Uh, that's just a bad idea. What is that stuff that guys like to eat with their breakfast? That's scrapple, right? Yeah, that's what's, what haggis is. And no one should eat any of that stuff. You know, there's lungs, there's brains, there's all kinds of stuff in there, and it's canned. Wow, that is so bad. I can't tell you how bad that tastes, right? My favorite thing about being Scottish is uh, this man, Robert Burns. Robert Burns was a Scottish poet. You know one of his poems by heart. Uh, you've probably sung it about uh, 10 times less than your age. So if you're 40 years old, I'm guessing there's been at least 30 times that you have sung, should all acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should all acquaintance be forgot for Auld Lang Syne? Auld Lang Syne means old, long since. It's uh, one of his poems. It's not his best poem. I believe his best poem, at least my favorite poem of his, is a poem about a woman in church. I've told you this before, but it is just such a great, great story and uh, has so much meaning. Burns was in church one Sunday, which is a surprising thing because he was a categoric drunk, and uh, it was just odd to imagine him ever being in church, and he was doing what probably everybody like him does in church, not paying any attention to what was going on, and one of the reasons he wasn't paying any attention to what was going on is because in front of him sat a woman who had a brand new bonnet on, and she was so proud of that bonnet, she's tossing her hair about and saying, oh, look look at this bonnet here. What she was unaware of was that there was a louse that was so big, you could see it from two rows back. And every time that she'd shake her head, that louse is like hanging on. And everyone's looking like, look at that louse. I cannot believe that louse there. Isn't that funny? To be like, look at me. Look how good I look. And everyone looks at you and says, you don't look as good as you think you do, sweetheart. And Burns ended his work with words that are timeless. He said this. Oh, what some part of get to get us to see ourselves as either see us. Do you know what that means, Rex? No, right? Here's what it means. I wish some power 
the gift would give us to see ourselves as others see us. And while it would appear that Burns was not paying attention to the sermon that day, he did echo a biblical concept. It would benefit us if we could see ourselves more objectively than we do. Because seeing ourselves objectively is really what helps us to understand where we are so we can see where we need to be. Seeing ourselves objectively is something that God offers to us. And he offers it to us through his word. When you look in your word, you're like looking in a mirror and seeing yourself and seeing, seeing how maybe there are things in your life. <laughs> Certainly, there are things in your own life that need to change. And I think we can do that if we look at Revelation 18. Surprisingly, and sadly, as I read through Revelation 18, preparing this message, I saw in Babylon, and we're going to talk about Babylon in detail, characteristics that, that dwell in my heart. And this passage alerts me to them so I can take action. So we're going to read two dozen verses. We're going to read them as fast as I can possibly read. Are you ready to go? Here we go. Ready? Revelation chapter 18, starting at verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive, and that's a key word, excessive luxuries. Verse four. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you may not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins have piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour on her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand afar off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you have longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified by, at her torment. They will weep and mourn, 
and cry out, Woe to you, great city, dressed in linen and purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship and the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand afar off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their head and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Wow, that's heavy, right? That is really heavy, isn't it? So I want to talk about this. And what I want to do as I begin is I want to address who is Babylon and what is her problem? Well, who is she? She's a prostitute riding on a beast that we talked about two weeks ago when we looked at Revelation 17. She is the enemy of God and of his people. And she is the corrupt world system that we all have come to realize. Now you have to understand, John's reader probably identified her as Rome. I can understand that. And there are people today who say, well, that's the Roman Empire revived. Maybe so. Uh, There was a child actor from Hollywood who had a lot of inside information about Hollywood actors and actresses, and he wrote a book called Hollywood, Babylon. And I have heard people say, yep, Hollywood, that's what Babylon is. It's Hollywood today. Yeah, okay. Another idea is that maybe Babylon is the United States. Sometimes I wonder about that. That's a good question. My professor who taught the book of Revelation, Dr. Ludwigson, might have said it best when he said this. Babylon, in this context, refers to the end time kingdom. When the end of time comes, this is a kingdom that will be empowered. What I believe is that Babylon is the evil world system that sets itself up in opposition to God. It has been around since Adam and Eve, and it will reach its climax, its zenith, its pinnacle at the end of days. That's who Babylon is. So what's her problem? Well, (laughs) she loves evil. The Bible says her life is marked by things like blasphemy, by material excess, and that's a really important phrase, materialistic excess, and by the persecution of Christians, even to the point of death. Well, where do you get that, Pastor Steve? In a chapter we just read. I mean, let's review a few verses. Let's look at verse 7 again. It says, Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned like a king. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. She is reminiscent and she feels reminiscent of the personage in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which remind us of Satan himself. She is boastful. She is arrogant. She is a blasphemer. 
Now look at verse nine. Again, it says, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. They shared her luxury. And you can see that excess in all that stuff that I read about the gold, the silver, the precious stone, the fine linen, the purple, the the ivory, the costly wood, the citron wood, the articles of marble, all that stuff that we just read there is speaking of materialistic excess. And I chose that phrase quite intentionally because I think it's important. It's not speaking of abundance. It's not that God is anti-abundant. In fact, scripture says when it's talking about giving to the Lord, it says, when you do that, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will flow over with new wine. So God is not anti-abundance. Here's what he's anti. Materialistic excess that you spend in self-indulgence. When God gives me abundance, he doesn't expect me to just use that on myself. He gives it to me as a steward, as a caretaker, one who is supposed to use it for his honor and glory because ultimately it belongs to him. Selfish excess. It has no regard for anyone. Look at verse 24. It says, in her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, and in this phrase, and of all who've been slaughtered on the earth. So it's not just persecution of Christians. It's just death in general. She's a killer because she loves evil. And in our current text, we see that she leads other people away from God. She leads them into sin. Uh, The first couple verses in Revelation 18, the angel's kind of depicting her downfall and letting us know that this is going to happen. And verse three really begins with the angel's explanation of this. It says, for the nations of the earth have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Do you see, see the common denominator there? It's Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. It's consistently leading people away from God. Now, you've seen this happen, maybe not on a worldwide level, but you see it happen from time to time on a personal level, right? I mean, do you know guys that were walking with Jesus, they were following God? Do you know women who, who loved the Lord and were worshiping him, and something happened that they, they kind of disappeared? They had been doing well. They were attending fellowship regularly. They were engaged in ministry in the kingdom of God. They were serving their local church family, connecting with it, even caring about the ends of the earth, loving the worship and the God they worship, and they kind of disappear. Have you seen men and women like that in your life? And there are a lot of different reasons that happens, but often, probably more often than you would expect, there has been an individual who has come into their life and invited them away from God, drawn them away from worshiping him. And while that might have seemed like a very small distraction, it can have huge implications and consequences. Because when someone moves away from God, they, by default, move towards sin. Maybe it's not the sin of commission. (laughs) There's a theological term for you. In other words, it's not maybe a sin that they're going to commit, like, okay, I quit going to church, so now I'm out robbing banks. I'm committing that crime. Maybe it's not like that. Maybe it's a sin of omission, where, okay, I'm not serving in, in a kingdom anymore. I'm just neglecting that. But either way, it's a sin. Either way, they have turned away and And quite frequently, it's because someone else has led them away from God. And that makes God angry. I mean, Jesus speaks about this kind of thing in Matthew. In chapter 18 of Matthew, in verse 6, Jesus says, and he's talking about little children, he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large 
millstone, hung around her neck, and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so we generally just see that as regarding children. But in the very next verse, Jesus broadens that problem. He says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. So you can see, Jesus is saying, leading others away from God, that's a bad thing. And the Bible speaks about it also in Romans 14. We're going to talk about this in more detail toward the end of the sermon. But listen to what it says in, in Romans 14, 21, where God's word says, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Listen, that's not talking about being a vegetarian. That's not talking about being a teetotaler. That's talking about the dire consequences of leading someone else into sin. And that's Babylon's problem. And it's maybe a more common problem than we would be aware of. Here's a third problem she has. She actually provides the tool, tools, the means, so others can sin. So Babylon's kind of like a drug dealer who provides death disguised as life. And people buy it, and they pay the price, and she pays the price. And again, we saw all this in verse 9 when it spoke of the kings of the earth go and commit adultery with her. She's providing for that. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn because they used to get stuff from her. She's providing for that. The sailors on the sea, she's providing for all of that thing. When I read those passages, there's just a couple phrases that stand out to me. A couple words. Here's the first one. Excess. Here's the second one. Slavery. You've heard people criticize the Bible claiming that it doesn't condemn slavery. Well, it does right here in verse 13. You saw it very clearly. It speaks of human beings being sold as slaves. And it says Babylon facilitated that and Babylon will pay for that. The Bible also condemns excess, not abundance, because God is in favor of abundance. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But that abundance is always for the purpose of serving others and helping others, sharing with others. But selfish unbridled, self-indulgent excess, that is something that God hates. And that is something that Babylon, the world system, provides, even advocates. You may think to yourself, Pastor Steve, I'm not certain how Babylon really, I don't know how the world system I live in actually facilitates the idea that I should live in excess. Just look at some of the advertisements you come across. And ask yourself, what is that telling me that I need? or I deserve, or I should want. So in this passage, Babylon is paying for her part in making such evils possible. And that kind of leads you to think about, well, then what lies in store for her? Obviously, judgment. Give back to her, verse 6 says, as she has given. And then it says, pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion of her own cup. Now, that might feel unfair to you. You know what I mean? She did this much, but I want you to give her back double that much to pay her. I feel like if I do $100 worth of damage, then I should only get $100 worth of punishment, right? That's kind of what I feel like. And it sounds in here like she's actually only done $100 worth of damage, but she's getting $200 worth of punishment. Uh, it doesn't sound fair, right? Yeah, it does. And here's why. If someone does $100 worth of damage and knew doggone well they weren't supposed to do that, and knew doggone well that will injure people, and knew doggone well <laughs> that that would be tragic and didn't give a rip about it because they were just enjoying their selfish, indulgent life, they need to pay more than $100. They need to pay more than $100. Hmm. That's what's going on here with Babylon. She's being paid back double for what she has done. She's experiencing torment. Give her as much torment and grief 
as a glory and luxury she gave herself. Again, that might sound extreme, torment, but remember what the last verse, verse 24 says. It says this, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people and all who've been slaughtered on the earth. Chapter 17 says it a little more dramatically, poetically, when it says, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. See, Babylon is evil. She didn't just copy someone's homework and she ought to have her wrist slapped. She has slaughtered people and taken pleasure in it for her own selfishness, her own self-indulgence. And as a result, she experiences terror. Or at least those looking on her look on with terror. Verse 10 says, terrified at her torment, they stand afar off and cry, whoa, whoa. In other words, even the most hardened of people who have watched Babylon and engaged in all her evil, when they see what's happening to her, they're terrified and shocked even the most hardened hearts. And finally, she suffers abandonment. Uh, at the very beginning in verse two, when it says, fallen is Babylon the great, that first angel who comes down says this, she has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bear, bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. What I had here, and I, I took the picture down, it, I took it out of my PowerPoint before yesterday, <laughs> What I had here was just a garbage pile. I just thought that's too ugly to show you before you have lunch, right? But that's what's going on here. There's nothing there of value any longer. Only, only refuse. So when I read this text, I thought, what does this mean to me? Is there any kind of a relevant truth for every generation? And I would say to you, there's actually a manifold, a multiple teaching for every generation in it that these words here definitely are for the people who will watch this happen with their own eyes in their own lifetime, and we may or may not be those people, but these words have had application for 2,000 years to every generation that has ever read it. And in a sentence, I would say that application is this, stand with God. Stand with God. Don't stand with Satan. Don't walk in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of the scornful. Don't stand with this evil world system. Stand with God. And we stand with God when we guard our hearts against evil. You know, to some, the concept of evil is an antiquated notion. I've watched these documentaries on TV, murder things, you know, where somebody went on a killing rampage, and then you get to hear all the law enforcement and judges and attorneys and counselors and psychologists that have have been involved in that case, tell their, their story on a documentary. I can remember one time, it just struck me so profoundly, there was a psychiatrist who was, she was a police psychiatrist, worked in law enforcement, and, and, she, and, and the interviewer said, do you think this person who had murdered people of all ages, little children and everything, do you think this person was evil? And the psychiatrist said, I don't know if there's such a thing as evil. Really? <laughs> really? What are you watching? What are you viewing? why are you in law enforcement, <laughs> right? Our world is filled with evil like a balloon that is overfilled with water and ready to burst. It won't even take a pin when the time comes. But listen, it is, a, it is not, let me say that again, listen, it is not so important that you and I be aware of when the balloon is going to burst. 
it is important, it is important that you and I be aware of where we are with God then and now. What's in our heart? Our suitcase. What's in our lives, our minds, our soul, our spirit? What is there that resembles Babylon? Uh, what's some power to give to us to see ourselves as others see us? Wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't it be good to see ourselves objectively? It is so easy for us to toss our heads with a sense of religious pride. Say, yeah, we're not there. And be completely oblivious to the giant louse that is crawling, parading across our bonnet. It's very easy. Very easy. Don't spend your time looking for Babylon in Hollywood or in Washington or the United Nations or Iran or the European Union or some religious establishment. Look into your own heart because you can't do anything about those other things. Look into your own heart and confess any wrongdoing or any wrong thinking or any wrong attitudes repenting of the trappings you find there. You see, we stand with God when we guard our hearts against evil. And we stand with God when we choose a healthy environment for our souls. There's a verse I read that probably slid right by you. It's verse four. Listen to it again as I read it. Follow along if you can. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out from her, my people. Wow, what tenderness. Come out from her, Babylon, this evil world system. God says, come out from her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. You know, as far as I can tell, that's the only command in this passage. At least the only one that applies to you and me. It has a right now kind of feel and it's telling us to stay away from those who would lead us to bad places. Think about this for a minute. Imagine you have some money and you're gonna start farming but you're going to farm like wholesale, big farm, thousands of acres. That's what you have in mind. So if you want to grow corn, you're going to put yourself in the Midwest, Nebraska. You're going to stay away from the desert. If you want to grow cotton, you're going to put yourself in the South. You're not going to be in the snowy regions. If you want to grow cactus and have some cactus cooler like Fred Flintstone had, you're going to do that in the Southwest, in a desert area. You're not going to do that in the Mississippi swamp. And if you want to grow to be spiritually alive and healthy, you will put yourself in the midst of those who are doing the same. Doing the same. Because you won't become healthy among evildoers. Verse four again, come out from her, my people, so that you do not share in her sins, so you not receive any of her plagues. Guard your hearts against evil and so stand with God. Choose a healthy environment for your soul so that you can stand with God. And third, be careful with your own freedoms. Babylon, she doesn't give a rip about how her evil affects others. She doesn't care. She doesn't care how it affects her husband. She doesn't even have a husband. She doesn't care how it affects the sailors on the sea. She doesn't care how it affects the merchants who do business with her. She doesn't care how it affects with the kings or anything else because she's free to do whatever she wants to do and she is going to do whatever she wants to do because she cares for her own happiness and her own pleasures and her own selfish indulgences. And in so doing, she takes others down with her. 
Hmm. When I think of that reality, I think of the question, how am I affecting those around me? I mean, am I drawing people in my family, people in my sphere of influence, am I drawing them toward God or am I kind of taking them away from God? Come over here, let's do something, let's do something fun. It's a legitimate question. Maybe more legitimate than we think. It was evidently so legitimate that the Bible speaks of it more than once, but one of the most profound places it speaks about it is in a passage we read earlier in Romans chapter 14. The Apostle Paul is dealing with people who are wondering, you know, how can I use the freedom I have in Christ? Because suddenly I have freedoms I didn't used to have in Christ. And there were all kinds of questions. And one of the questions was, you know, I can get really good meat down the road there at the pagan temple and it's highly discounted. That's where I think I should get my meat. And someone else says, I can't believe you're supporting that pagan ministry. Why would you do such a thing as that? That's kind of like a, just a bird's eye view of what's going on there. The Apostle Paul says, you know, you really want to be careful. You are free to buy that meat but you really want to be careful about how you use your freedom. And it's interesting to me how as as God in his word unfolds just in a couple verses this concept, the superlatives that he uses, I mean, the emphases that he gives. I mean, listen, listen to what he says. He says, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace. Okay, he doesn't say, let us make an effort. He doesn't say, you might want to do this. Why don't we try doing this, he doesn't say. I mean, it's real clear. He says, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual building up of one another, edification. And then in verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. He doesn't say this, don't do anything that might might hurt somebody. Don't do anything that could cause a little damage. Hey, you don't want to do this because who knows, it might just distress somebody. His language is strong. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's just wrong, he's saying. He doesn't say it's a bad idea. He doesn't say it could be a problem. He just flat says it's wrong. And then he goes on and he says, it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Anything. Well, what about popcorn? Anything. What about grapes? Anything. Anything that causes someone else to stumble. And then he says, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine. Think about what that meant in that culture. Don't eat meat. I'm going to tell you, my buddy, Andy, I didn't get your permission to share this, so you can beat me up later, okay? My buddy Andy is a vegetarian. By the way, he came to men's group. He brought pizza. I was a little worried for just a second that we'd all be eating vegetable pizza, but Andy, Andy is a man of love and of grace, and he brought, man, there was sausage, there was pepperoni. If you're not in men's group, you're probably going to live to be 100. <laughs> so I was really proud of Andy doing that, but let me talk about Andy for a minute. Andy has said this to me before. He said, sometimes not eating meat is a real burden because everywhere you go, everything has meat. You know, I, go, I go somewhere with my wife, and she, she gets a salad. We're at a steakhouse. She's getting a salad. What is wrong with that, right? Animals died for you, honey. Get this meat. Get this meat, right? Okay. I bring up Andy to say, that is no small task in 2019 to consistently avoid meat. It was no small task when John wrote these words, or Paul wrote these words, rather. It was no small task. And, and avoiding wine? How could you possibly do that in the first century? Because sometimes the water was not good. So how do you do that? So you understand that what he's doing here is he's giving a pretty radical perspective. He said, don't do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. It's strong language because, because, 
And hear this. God's not telling you you must not eat meat. God's not telling you it's a sin to drink wine. Here's what God is saying. He is saying you put yourself in the dire circumstances of Babylon when you lead someone away from God and into sin. So be careful with your freedoms. That's the point he's making. If you want to stand with God, be careful with your freedoms. Stand with God. Avoid the outcome of evil. That's what I want to do. How about you? Remember Robert Burns' concluding sentence? <laughs> ah, wad some pa to get to guess, to see ourselves as others see us. I wish that some power the gift would give us to see ourselves as others see us. We've been given a power better than that. It's a power to see ourselves objectively. And it comes by looking into his word and asking his spirit to show us where we are and what needs to change. And I'd like to pray that we could do that. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together. Here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would show us the garbage in our life that he finds offensive because we have seen that that garbage is indeed offensive to him. And I'm going to pray that he would show us that because if we're not aware of that, if we don't have any self-awareness, then we'll never deal with it. So God, show us that. And then I'm going to pray that we would repent of it. You're not looking at the garbage in your life so you can feel like garbage about yourself. You're looking at the garbage in your life so you can say, I want to be free from the guilt and I want to be released from the shame that comes with that. Who can do that? Jesus says, I can do that. Give me that guilt. Give me that shame. I'll deal with it. That's the kind of prayer we're praying today. So bow your heart with me and we'll do that. Father in heaven, we are thankful that we don't need to see ourselves as others see us, but rather we can see ourselves as you see us. And we understand the paradox that if we are Christians, if we have turned to Christ and been saved from your wrath through his death on the cross by trusting him and following after him, that when you look at us, you see us as pure and holy and spotless. On the other hand, that paradox says you are aware of the stuff that's in our life that we're not even aware of that needs to be corrected. And so we would ask for that second thing, Father, that that which you see in our hearts that is sin, that is wrong, that needs to be removed, that needs to be taken care of, that you would make us aware of that, not to shame us, not to humiliate us, not to put us on a guilt trip, but so that we can get rid of it, so that we can turn away from it, so we can, so we can hand it to you. We kind of come to you like a little child with a splinter in our hand that every time we try to get it out, it just goes deeper. And we come to you as a loving father who can reach in and take that which does not belong in our lives, pull it out, and help us to move forward so that we reflect with how we are. We reflect who we are. Make this happen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.